0: pulling out a point, Solomon, that you made earlier, which is to have the courage to say no to bad money. And as a fundraiser, that can just be really hard, but long-term having the right investors with you, having the right people on your journey makes the growth of your organization possible and protects and guards your your mission. Hey everyone, my name is Alicia Miranda,
1: and welcome to What Donors Want, a podcast by IG Advisors. I'm the chief executive here at IG, and we're a London-based social impact strategy consultancy on a mission to bridge the gap between fundraisers, businesses, and philanthropists. At IG, we have unique insight into both donors and fundraisers and want to help them better understand each other. And so, we bring you season two of What Donors Want, our fresh, dynamic, and slightly irreverent view into major gifts fundraising, straight from the donor's mouth.
2: Welcome back to What Donors Want. I'm Rachel Stephenson Chef, the producer and host of the show, and this next episode is an extremely special one because it marks the beginning of our official partnership with the Siegel Family Foundation, the podcast's new sponsor. Listeners who are with us in season one will remember the Siegel Family Foundation from our live interview with their executive director, Andy Bryant. It was the most fun. It was here in London, and uh, it was definitely one of the highlights for us. So for those of you who might not be familiar with the foundation, the Siegel Family Foundation is among the most generous and influential international development funders. Based between the US and East Africa, they believe in a world where development is steered by grassroots leaders and power is shifted into the hands of communities. Their mission is to change the power dynamics inherent in traditional philanthropy and prove that a new, more equitable and responsive approach is not only more fair, but it's also more effective. We are huge fans of the Siegel Family Foundation at IG, and are beyond thrilled and grateful that they are now our official podcast sponsor. So to properly celebrate this and kick off this partnership, we hosted a live recording at Siegel's annual general meeting in New York this autumn. The room was packed with hundreds of organizations and funders, and featured what donors want with a twist. Instead of interviewing a donor, this time we sense-checked and explored the advice donors have given throughout the show's history with three of Siegel's brilliant grantees. I had the pleasure of co-hosting this panel with Cher One DeWitt, the Foundation's Director of Partnerships, and it was an incredibly illuminating conversation. So, on to the podcast, and we hope you enjoy it. <laughs> I want to welcome you all to this very exciting and special live episode of What Donors Want at the 2019 Siegel Family Foundation Annual Meeting. Uh, We're so thrilled and delighted to be here, and I'm going to turn it over now to Sherwan DeWitt, the Foundation's Director of
3: Partnerships, to introduce our panel. Thanks so much, Rachel. Uh, We're really excited that you all came out this morning. I know it's a little early still, but we're really happy to have What Donors Want here, and we're thrilled to introduce you to our panelists today, Um, starting with Peggy Willenda Motivo. Uh, Peggy is the founder and executive director of Pacemaker International, which engages passionate youthful volunteers to expand educational access to African students. She is a Laureate Global Fellow with the International Youth Foundation, a graduate of Harvard University, A recipient of the Clinton Global University Commitment of the Year Award in 2012, and an associate of the Harambe Entrepreneurial Alliance. She's a 2018 African Visionary Fellow with Siegel Family Foundation and a 2019 Cheng Fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School. I think we can clap for Peggy. Next to Peggy, we have Solomon King Benge, who is passionate about education, design, business, and technology. He's the founder of Fundibots, an education nonprofit with a mission to accelerate science learning in Africa. Fundibots aims to promote better learning outcomes, improved career prospects, and real world technological advancement in African schools and communities through training and experimentation in hands on, project based, and skills oriented science disciplines, starting with robotics. Through his work with Fundibots, he was selected as a 2014 Echoing Green Fellow and a 2014 Ashoka Fellow. In 2017, Solomon was selected also as an African Visionary Fellow by the Siegel Family Foundation. And over the past four years, Solomon has led the growth of Fundibots from a hobby running in the spare room of his house um, to an organization that's now working with more than 120 schools and 8,000 students. And last we have Ash Rogers. Um, Ash is Executive Director at Lawala Community Alliance, which is a community-led innovator targeting the multidimensional drivers of poor health in Western Kenya. She is also a former Siegel Family Foundation colleague, having served as the Foundation's Director of Operations. So we're glad to have her back in this capacity. Um, But prior to this, Ash has worked with many organizations, including the US State Department, Como Learning Centers, and Help International. The common focus being developing tools to support local social innovators. She also currently sits on the boards of Como Learning Centers and the Indigenous Education Fund of Tanzania.
2: Hey, um, so welcome all of you to this very special and kind of different episode of What Donors Want. Um, as Carolyn said in the intro, we're kind of flipping the table on this one. So we've done almost two full seasons now of interviewing donors about their fundraising preferences. And now we want to sense check that with grantees and, and with partners and say, how does that feel to you? Is that actually realistic? What are your fundraising tips for people who might be in your shoes? Um, and really just kind of uh, dive into that advice that we've heard throughout the season. How we always start our podcast. Uh, actually has nothing to do with philanthropy or fundraising. We started with a speed round of get-to-know-you questions and the whole idea behind that is that we really believe that donors of, of all kinds are just people and we all have so many similarities and it's really important to kind of keep yourself humble and remember that and it's a, a good foundation to build partnerships off of. So we are going to apply the same speed round to you guys. Um, say the first thing that comes to your mind are very silly, non-fundraising related questions. No pressure. Um, they haven't seen these questions before. Full disclosure. So uh, that's that's pretty brave. <laughs> and uh, and we will just go for it. You guys ready? Okay. Um, so the first question for you, Peggy. If you could have any superpower, what would it be?
3: Um, flying. I would love to zoom out and see the world from up there. Solomon. What was the last TV show that you binged?
4: Uh Chernobyl. Oh, yeah. Me too. It's a fantastic show. It's so very good. Freaky.
0: Yeah, Yeah, that was a hard one. Ash, what was the last book that you read? Uh, I'm about to finish, so I hope that can count. Um, A book called uh, Chintu by a Ugandan novelist that's just a really beautiful story. Peggy, what's your favorite genre of music?
2: Um, Classical, music without words, so I can just take time to think. Solomon, what's your favorite guilty pleasure movie?
4: Guilty pleasure? Movie. Movie. Yeah. These your suspects.
3: Ash, what's your go-to karaoke song? <laughs> oh, I want to dance with somebody by Whitney <laughs> Houston. That's totally mine too. Um,
2: Peggy, if the world was going to end tomorrow, what would your last meal be?
5: Chocolate.
3: <laughs> Solomon, do you prefer coffee or tea? Tea. And it's actually it's quite an early morning. Maybe by a show of hands in the audience, how many of you prefer coffee?
2: I think T wins. It might, yeah. Almost. (laughs) Wow. Okay, and final question uh, for Ash. Beyonce or Lady Gaga? Beyonce. (laughs) Yes, I think we can fully agree. However, opening it up to the audience, show of hands for Beyonce. Mm -hmm. Lady Gaga fans, anyone? Okay. All right. She has some support. I'm definitely on the Beyonce team. All right, that is it. You have survived the speed rounds. Oh, thank um, congratulations. Now we can get to the meat of the interview, talking all about fundraising and philanthropy. And I am going to hand it over to Sherwin for the first question.
3: Yeah, so we're really excited to hear a bit more about what you think is um, kind of something that funders should know um, and also what grantees should know in approaching them. But we're interested if you could describe your dream donor partnership and kind of focusing on what specific qualities it would have.
6: I think my dream donor partnership really is a partnership and a relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's more than just money, it's more than a check, it's, but it's a willingness to commit time
1: mm-hmm.
6: uh, to the growth of our organization. Realizing that my organization is one of the most important parts of my life and you know respecting that and being ready to commit just as much mm-hmm. to, to that effort. Um, It's an equal space as well. It's a space where we can have honest conversations.
4: Um, So I'm a pretty crazy guy. Uh, (laughs) Just in terms of like the things that I love doing and the areas that I love exploring. Um, And so my dream relationship with donors is basically someone who understands that a lot of the solutions that I, I think are great might be extremely unconventional. And so being able to... Um, to trust that I have an idea, but it may not be the right one. Um, but it's a, it's a journey of risk and candor that we are willing to work together is truly important. Um, and then also the understanding that organizations grow and pivot and what worked yesterday wasn't what isn't what's going to work tomorrow is extremely important because all of us believe that we have this idea, that's going to solve the world's problems, but it may not be the right one. And so, it's important that we understand and give ourselves this room to to grow together and um, and trust each other.
0: Yeah, uh, unrestricted, multi-year arrives on time. <laughs> and uh, I, I, you know, I, I think that that sounds sort of funny next to responses that are really soulful about about partnership. And of course, those things are important too but the structure and predictability of money makes it more or less useful. And so I think that just getting the the basics down um, of of good grant-making principles really, really matters um, to an implementer. Um, And then from there, I really value, I have several funders who have been willing to mentor me, to really be in the work with me in our triumphs, but most importantly, in our challenges. And there's a, special bond I think that's created when you serve together and the funders who've been willing to really be there with me and be present with me have had a window into Lawala that's quite unique that puts them you know directly into the service of our community and on just a personal note those are really important relationships to me and those are people who've seen me grow up and have seen sort of this window into my life that's through the passion of my work.
2: Yeah, it's, it's fantastic. And it's so interesting because everything that you just described, a flexible kind of an actual relationship, a partnership and uh, with trust where you can have unrestricted multi-year funding, that's exactly what most of the donors have said on our show about what they want to do. There's often such a divide between both sides who are saying the exact same thing, but oftentimes it doesn't actually happen. Um, so, And going off of that, a key theme across so many, if not all of our donor guests on the show has been that quest for the the ultimate true partnership so they want transparency around mistakes and challenges they want a grantee to push back on their ideas and kind of roll their sleeves and sit at the same table and call them out on things that they may not understand they want really strategic partners Um, but our our next question to you is have you been able to find donors like that easily in real life and and what are donors doing that make that kind of partnership easy and hard for you to find and secure
0: I think that Yes, I have been able to find donors like that. And there are several donors like that in this room. And I think that characteristics that they have in common is that if they're expecting transparency that and they want to know about how internal systems work at Lawala and they want to understand our decision making, that they're also opening up and sharing those things about their foundation. Yes. Um, and that signals a couple of things. One, it, it's a sign of trust. And, and I know that, that you're trusting me and so that's easier to reciprocate that. And secondly, it lets me know that you understand nuance. So if you have complicated organizational systems and things don't always work out exactly how you planned, I'm much more willing to share those and much more open to share those with you because I know that you'll handle them with with maturity and with nuance and that we can really have a conversation about ideas and about how to move forward and that I'm not always feeling like I need to be performative in our conversations.
4: Um, So... Most times when I'm when I'm trying to initiate a donor engagement, um, the one thing that's sort of front and center for me is that I need to prepare myself for the fact that I may want to walk away at some point. All right, um, and once I understand that it's okay to step away from the table in case you don't see anything like fit or um, collaboration or partnership, it removes the power dynamic. It basically allows you to say, this is what we believe in as an organization, and this is how we think we're going to do this. Um, Obviously, advice is welcome, guidance is welcome, but there comes a certain stage in the discussion when you realize that you're probably making too many concessions, too many exceptions to your your work, and that it's time to step away and and acknowledge that maybe that's not a good fit. Um, So how that helps us, for example, is that um, patience becomes very important, uh, but also planning around the fact that this is still a 50-50 until you both sign the grant agreement Mm -hmm. means that you can continue without compromising integrity, without compromising passion, and basically creating an environment where the people who you're actually meant to serve are not not paying the price for this dynamic that exists between you and the donor. Mm -hmm. So I tend to approach it more from a very logical perspective.
6: I see from a very emotional perspective <laughs> um, I lead with intuition and that's that's important because it enables me to be responsive to the needs of our community but fundraising is a lot like dating you have to make sure the relationship is balanced you have to make sure that you can give and take advice the openness and the transparency that you talked about is super important I think the the, share, the shared goal. So understanding, you know, where is this something that we're in for the long run? So I definitely bias towards funders who want to be in this relationship for the long run, um, and are willing to work through the growth cycles of my of my organization and my team. When we started this work, I was twenty. 23 years old, and you know, still figuring out a lot of life, and also a lot of how to grow the organization. And as my organization has grown, I'm glad that there are funders who've been willing to grow with us in that process. Um, yes.
5: Yeah,
2: that's so interesting. I, I think. It can be really challenging if you're if you're a grantee partner and you're just not coming across these kinds of donors. And if you if that power dynamic is really keeping uh, keeping you from establishing those partnerships, do you have any? I mean, you've already alluded to some, but do you have any other fundraising tips for an organization who might feel stuck and who might not be establishing those kinds of partnerships?
6: I think ask the tough questions. Oh. <laughs> Really, uh, the best meetings I've had are where I've had conversations and asked about what mistakes the foundation has made, and then they've been open and honest about those mistakes. Um, I think we talk about, we do this nice soft dance around power dynamics and sometimes don't really recognize it or say, okay, we're recognizing it, but reality is we still need to have, you know... um, we need to make sure that we approximate to the board as well as prox- the board of the foundation, as well as approximate to the community on the ground. And so, recognizing, you know, when 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 is the button to make sure that equity and justice is on both sides. Um, it's not just placed on the grantee, but it's actually also placed on the side of the foundation. Mm-hmm. So I think it's important to have those difficult conversations, talk about bias, talk about racism, talk about blind spots, because the, those things are really important and we often don't have the courage to call them
2: out. Mm-hmm. I love that. And I love how it ties into your point, Ash, about asking what kind of operational um, you know mistakes or challenges a foundation or donor might have as well. And, 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 and you said that, too, just kind of getting on the same ground about being transparent.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. And, and you know, when I'm in a conversation with a donor, particularly if it's a, a new conversation or a new relationship that I'm building, I'm always trying to, to pivot away from me giving a pitch to both of us engaging and talking about ideas and there's sort of a, a trick that I learned from my four-year-old, which is that if you ask why four times, you get into some, like, really existential, deep conversations. <laughs> that's fabulous. <laughs> Anything you want to add, Solomon?
4: Oh, sorry, I got disrupted by the existential questions. Yeah,
2: it's very um, existential.
4: <laughs> yeah, this question.
2: Yeah, awesome. Yeah, I think that, that's, um, that's a great answer. And the next question that we have for you is, is also kind of sense-checking something that donors have said a lot on the show, which is when we talk about how you find partners, the overwhelming consensus among all of our guests is I don't want to be found. I want to do the finding. I want to establish relationships with partners who are in my network. Personal introductions are the best way to do that. I don't respond to cold emails. I don't respond to oftentimes open application portals if I don't recognize the name. Um, And obviously that's a huge challenge for, for grantees, especially if you're not plugged into certain networks where you know, privileged networks where there are a lot of funders within that. And so our next question to you is, how have you navigated that? How do you make donors find you? And do you have any fundraising advice for organizations who are looking to expand their network?
4: So I'd would, I would like to give, um, there's an example that I like giving. There's this brilliant guy doing amazing work in Western Uganda. I don't really know the scope of, of the work, but I know that he was extremely diligent in his work. Um, But he's so deeply embedded within his community that he literally has no idea of the existence of anything like a funder network outside of the world that he's embedded in. Um, And when I'm in places like this, when I'm in rooms like this, I'm always constantly reminded that there are people like that who do not have the privilege and the access to be in this space. Um, So I, I feel like... There is a tremendous disservice if we create roadblocks to people who who, who need the very strong and very localized support, because someone like that is probably working with 10,000 people within his community. He's done tremendous changes. He's, he's probably paying out of his own pocket. Um, but... He, he has no idea what an unsolicited proposal is, right? He has all this terminology that we discuss in places and panels like this mean nothing to him. All he knows is the work, and all he knows is the people that he wants to help. Um, so it's what I'm trying to say is that there has to be... I know we talk about empathy a lot, but I just want to emphasize that, right? There has to be an understanding from the side of the donor that there are people... Who would benefit greatly from this support, but they need to understand that they may not understand the nuances of donor engagement. They do not, they may not understand the specificities of um, relationship management. They're just basically saying, look, I'm doing this, I need some money. All right. And if we approach, if we approach engagements like that with the empathy that they deserve, then there is a responsibility on the donor side to at least go halfway. Um, towards finding people like that. And I know that there are donors who decide to use um, organizations like Seagull that are doing the groundwork and use them as a, as a fishing net, so to speak, to find people like that. Um, but uh, so, I mean, I have different ways of doing it. I use, um, I, use my, I use the funders, I use my board members, I do research, ETC, but I have access to all of this. All right, how do we help the person who has no idea what's going on. How do we reach them? Because the truth is, this is the one person who's embedded so deeply into their community that everything, the, the beneficiaries are their breath. It's their life. Like, that is all that exists for them. And that is the kind of person who will put extreme value to every single dollar that he's given. And so we need to work towards finding people like that and supporting them as much as possible.
6: I agree with Solomon. I mean, the... Finding people who are out of the traditional beltway is important. Um, and, I mean, they are so deeply within the community that they might not actually, you might, not, you might easily miss them if you're on the track where you ask, um, you know, you ask your friends, you ask who they have accepted as a funder in the past. Um, I have a cool story to share, but it really comes from a space of rejection. So we applied for this grant that I knew we were never going to get. But what the funder who put that together did is they took their rejected uh, grant, the rejected applicants, and actually shared the list with other donors. So they're like, oh, this is good, this is good, this is good, but didn't fit for us. So I think that's a step that funders can actually take, um, especially when you see an organization that has stretched out and is on the path to growing, but has just not got into that place. So take the people you've not accepted and send them to, send them to other people.
0: Yeah. And I think to, to donors, your networks are biased. That's just true. And so if you are wanting to use your networks to find grantees, make sure that they're biased towards justice, and consider hiring program officers who are from the communities that you're hoping to serve. Consider how you can be part of networks that find um, people who are are really proximate to the issue that you care about. There's an element, of course, of racial bias here, and I think it's only fair to, to call that out. Um, that absolutely happens in our sector, and our sector should be about social justice. Um, and to us as implementers, I think you know, it's an illusion of capitalism, I would say, <laughs> that, that our sector should be competitive. Um, and particularly in private philanthropy, it's very seldom a zero-sum game. If there is a foundation that's funding Lawalla and likes our work, they're very likely to like KLC or um, Orchestra School or Nyaka or Dandelion um, or Integrate or Musso. And so if I'm able to help my funder by telling them about other great organizations that I believe in and can vouch for, that helps the funder. It makes me look bigger and it helps those other organizations build their own networks. And that's a way, like Solomon, you're saying that like we can help find those people who aren't part of those networks and drag them in.
6: And maybe the last thing is, you know, we're not thinking about, let's, one way that this could be dismissed is someone could say, oh, we're trying to label some people as good, some people as bad. And that's not what's happening here. It's we're calling people to the space where we can say, we know better, we should do better, we should do better as funders, we should do better as grantees who are in pipelines, and we should help bring other organizations along. So it's just how do we bring more equity into the space by bringing more people along?
3: Mm-hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, I want to circle back to an ideal that Ash pinned for us at the beginning, which is the the holy grail of grant formats of unrestricted funding, which um, you know should be a matter of logic that it would be at the core of grant making for all funders. But unfortunately, it is that's not always the case, and I think. It, was Joyce Malombe yesterday in a session from Wellspring Philanthropic Fund who said, I can't, or people can't grow projects on trees, right? Um, unrestricted funding is necessary to allow organizations to make investments in their teams and their operations. Um, but yeah, how easy or challenging has it been for you all to find that type of funding? Um, or how have you convinced donors who might not have otherwise been open to it to consider it for your organization?
4: Um, so we've, we've been kind of privileged that, um, that a, lot of people, a lot of people don't really understand what we do. But, uh, <laughs> Um, so, it, it, so for example, when when we got the Economic fellowship, it was unrestricted funding, um, um, and then you know um, Seagull came, and it was also un, unrestricted funding. But I like to I like to use the concept of something that I call risk capital, which is basically an investment in something that you're not sure is going to work at all, but you have you have a deep understanding of the person and that's why a lot of these fellowships invest in the person behind the organization uh, more than the idea uh, because they see a spark that may transition, that may start and end with that organization, but their hope is that if they put enough investment in the person, they will go on to create a lot more ideas. Um, So for us, we've been been lucky that a lot of our funders are unrestricted funders. Um, which has helped us morph our work in very interesting ways. It has also allowed us to create programs that generate revenue. It's allowed us to transform some of our some of our models from um, uh, from very uh, specific. Um, singular engagements to now developing um, mass adoption products and teacher training that will basically mean that we can move our scale from 2X to 50X um, just because one donor said, let's invest in this thing that you think is a great idea and let's see how that goes. Um, so the concept of risk capital is very important to me. But on the flip side, I also love budgeted funding. Right, because it means that if I make a proposal that we're going to hit these specific targets, Mm -hmm. I know that I have to allocate these resources. It it, it doesn't leave me room to experiment with some things because I have this um, belief that if we rigorously follow this model, this is what we hope to achieve at the end. But if it's unrestricted, I'll be like, all right, so we need to buy 10 more computers, let's see how that goes. Um, so we have a very nice mix of, I, I think we have uh, about 60% is unrestricted, and then the rest is very projects specific, yeah.
0: And I, I think, I would also say in terms of like, um, recommendations to other implementers, is that you, know, you really can't expect a funder to give you unrestricted funding unless you're showing them your whole organization. And so try to move away from pitching a project to pitching visions and pitching models. Um, And I think the funders often have, in my opinion, a misguided view that restricting funding gives them more financial accountability over the project. Um, I won't get into why I think that's untrue or the principle of fungible funds, but, um, but from a practical standpoint as, a, as an implementer, what you can do is really invest in your financial systems and then be really transparent in sharing where money is going, sharing cash flow statements, sharing really like uh, individualized budgets and how other funders' um, money is coming in to support you so that they can sort of see that catalytic gap um, that, that unrestricted funding's able to have. I, th- I think ultimately what a lot of funders want when they're, tr- when they're trying to use restricted funding is they just wanna understand the impact of their dollar. And so if you can show them that story through numbers, then that can sort of help them feel more comfortable with giving unrestricted funding. I've definitely asked the
6: funder, you know, why, 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 why do you only give unrestricted? And their response was, "Oh my, uh, sorry, why do you only give restricted?" And their uh, their response was, "My board has requires me to just do this." And so it's part of it is it's an unquestioned assumption, but part of it is not understanding the math. So when you look at how much it actually costs an organization like mine to manage are funds that are restricted, you know, between having to figure out, okay, where else are we going to find supplementary funding to to match this, or how do we figure out which staff member we have to let let go of? It gets to a place where you can put the organization that you're giving restricted funding to in a very choppy or dicey position. I think the, the middle ground for this is to decide, okay, you know, what is? Can we give a percent restriction? Fifty uh, percent is restricted, fifty percent is unrestricted, mm-hmm. as part of the same grant, the same grant. Or can we give learning grants, for instance, to, to organisations that they're free to use in, in in any other way that they need? So I think just a lot more creativity will be required, both as uh, as funders design the the funding, but also as grantees look for this funding. Please ask for some portions, some wiggle room for yourself. Advocate for yourself.
3: Yeah, I love that you said creativity, Peggy, because I feel like there's, you know, obviously diverse experiences between you, but I think all of what you're describing really requires trust as a base in grant making and working collaboratively to understand what your challenges are in terms of allocating resources?
2: Yeah, I, I, I loved all of your answers and I think uh, the creativity on the part of fundraisers, obviously the, there is a huge role for funders to understand the importance of, of unrestricted funding but you can also be creative in the way that you're pitching it and as you said, Ash, about making sure you're pitching vision rather than just projects and the only thing I'd add to that is as well making sure that you include your overhead costs in any project budget mm-hmm. so if you do find yourself with a huge portfolio of restricted funders, you can put your salaries and your office space and you can, you know, creatively incorporate that into those project budgets to make sure that those costs are being accounted for somewhere, and it can really help. Mm-hmm.
4: I, I have a question uh, for anyone in this room who can answer this. Is there any sort of direct correlation between um, the percentage of unrestricted funding versus the organization's budget? Like, I'm trying to understand if there's something like a risk index for why or why not we, we have scenarios where there's unrestricted funding? Is it because the organization is too small? The, do, do the restrictions get bigger when the organization's budget size gets bigger because then the, the dollar risk is way, is way higher? Like, is there anything that exists like that? Does anyone have? I mean, this is probably <laughs> a statistical analysis that probably someone has done.
0: So I love that you're approaching this from like what would the evidence and data suggest, <laughs> and I don't know that that's how these decisions are made, and I think that that's like an unfortunate indictment of, of philanthropy a little bit because I'm not I I don't I'm not aware of that, and yeah. I think a lot of times people make those decisions based on like what Peggy's talking about with like their board and sort yeah. of their how they're seeing funding rather than looking at like. How might this support the trajectory of, of organizations that yeah.
6: and I, I think know. we need to just get to a place where we begin to ask how might the world look different if we were to define what risk is and then you know what risk appetite we actually have. Yeah. So what is risky? I hate to think that someone thinks that my organization is risky, but the truth is someone probably. Thought it was
0: risky. I think there are foundations that big 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 big. are thinking about that. I know Big Bang has like made a big push um, around unrestricted funding. Mm-hmm. I think Open Road Alliance is like thinking about risk in like maybe a similar way that you think about risk, mm-hmm. Solomon. Mm-hmm. So hopefully, there's bright yeah. spots. I don't mm-hmm. know. I think
3: that there's certainly a diversity of approaches here, depending on the funder. Um, everyone kind of starts from a place of, you know, what are we passionate about funding? How do we want to do it? How do we build a method around it? But I think most foundations could use a lot of feedback on that on that methodology, and and would. And, and hopefully would love to get it, right? Um, and I think especially there's a, a role for organizations to play in really informing um, funders on how to more realistically approach risk. Mm-hmm. I had a conversation with another foundation, a newer foundation, who were concerned about organizations' vulnerability to fraud, and we're asking questions around, does that mean we create more reporting? Do we create more restrictions around funds? How do we prevent this from happening? Um, and the answer that... that you know, I gave in the conversation was, well, have you thought about making sure the organization has protected funds for health insurance for Mm -hmm. its staff? Mm -hmm. Um, And and I think that people on the implementation side can share a lot of really important insights with funders about how to actually achieve the outcomes that they're looking for because I think they're generally shared. Yeah. I think
2: also the question of risk, I mean, that word is so loaded and so talked about all the time and it's, we speak a lot about it at IG and and try and wrap our minds around it because when you're giving a philanthropic grant you're not getting that money back. Like what is risk? It is out the door. There's no, you know, there's no return on that investment in in a monetary sense that you really have to worry about. The risk is held by the people who are on the ground, Mm -hmm. who might even be risking their lives. So I think, I mean, risk is is a term that I think a lot of funders have to uh,
0: really reevaluate their relationship to. And hopefully that's the role of private philanthropy, is to take big risks that other forms of money can't take. Mm -hmm. I mean, venture capitalists,
6: PE people take this risk all mm-hmm. the
0: time. Yeah, mm-hmm. I
6: think that as a social impact sector, we need to also ask what we can learn Yeah, from I that f- side. I yeah. feel like
4: VCs and PEs definitely have a risk index. Yeah,
6: yeah. and yeah. A, risk, a risk appetite, and yeah. you
2: decide where, where to place yeah. yourself. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Great, Great question, question. Yeah.
3: Right. Um So, kind of... Circling back, it sounds like you all have a lot of great experience, Um, but looking back now, if you could go back and give yourself a piece of fundraising advice, I mean, Peggy, you talked about yourself at 23, starting your organization, but if you could return to yourself and give your best piece of advice, what would it be? Um, Ali, I just tell myself to ask often.
6: I tell myself it's going to be really, really difficult for quite some time. Like, you will face, <laughs> and give myself a hug, and just be like, it'll be it'll be a, it'll be a challenge. But um, to make sure you have a community of people um, who know you and who see you beyond the ups and downs of uh, different f- pieces of feedback. So they'll celebrate, they'll cry with you, and they'll buy you chocolate.
4: I like how Peggy's answers always emotional, and I'm always flipping to the logical side. Um, so my advice is very practical like be patient this takes time um just because you meet someone at a a conference like this doesn't mean that they went right to a check in two weeks i thought that when i just started just my work and i was really frustrated disappointed and sometimes angry at how long it took for people to get back to you um but then you know the there, there things uh, so one of the one of the other things I'll tell myself is that look donors have no obligation to give you money all right That's just the reality. Um, and so allowing yourself to, to allow yourself to be patient, patient, play for the long for the long haul, understand that there will be tough times um, and then manage your growth uh, because that's something that we are growing really fast um, but thankfully, that's a lesson that I learned in my for-profit for company. And so now I'm more very, I'm, I'm, I'm more careful about how quickly uh, we can grow. And then for fundraising, I think I would have gotten a mentor much, much earlier, like at the beginning of
0: my mm. yeah,
4: like just someone to walk me through the process and um, help me understand how that works. I
0: think I would have said to Ash, um, you know, not to let the world to trick you into having a scarcity mindset and really believing in abundance and believing that there are enough resources in this world to solve the challenges that we're all here to solve um, and to approach fundraising from that perspective. Um, and maybe pulling out a point, Solomon, that you made earlier, which is to have the courage to say no to bad money. And as a fundraiser, that can just be really hard because you have people's salaries and people's lives within your responsibility. And so um, it can be really hard to say no to that money, but long-term, having the right investors with you, having the right people on your journey makes the growth of your organization possible and protects and guards your, your mission. That's fabulous. Okay, so we're going to open it up to an audience Q&A in
2: just a second. Uh, one more final question for you. We, know we asked you about fundraising advice for yourself at the beginning of your career. Is there anything else that you would want to add for listeners to this podcast? So people who are fundraisers right now, maybe in big organizations, maybe in small organizations, is there any other um, nuggets or gems that you want them to walk away with?
4: Mine would be about Um, understanding that there needs to be empathy across both sides of the table. Um, We we can sit up here and pontificate about how awesome the work that we're doing is and how everyone needs to fund us. Um, But on the other side of the table, they are also human beings with emotions. Um, It's not just just an ATM machine that you withdraw money from. Um, So I think both funders and grantees or doers should be able to understand that expectations, respects, partnerships, collaboration should be mutual and should be reciprocated. It's not just a one-way transaction. Mm
0: -hmm. Building on that, I would love for this to happen. This is my dream in the philanthropic space, Mm -hmm. which is, it's actually not all that ambitious, so I'm hyping it up too much. But (laughs) it's small. We could do it together. This room could do it if if we were focused. And that is that every time a funder is considering a grantee, either through a proposal process or through a formal uh, due diligence process, that you take the time to give feedback on why you either accepted that grant and made a grant or why you didn't. And that can be really hard if you're running a huge award where you've invited thousands of applicants. And so if you don't have the time to give feedback, on all of those applicants who spent time on your your due diligence process, then perhaps you should rethink your due diligence process because all of those people also spent time trying to approach you. And for grantees, let's always ask for feedback. Even if the funder is gonna say, no, that's okay. Let's start creating a norm where it's okay to ask why. And that doesn't mean that anyone owes you Funding, right? No one, you, you, there's no obligation for someone to give you money. But I think that there should be a little bit of reciprocation if you're spending time engaging with someone that they just take the time to say, hey, you know what? We, we want you to be a little bit further along, or actually, you know what? Pat on us. Like, we thought that you were in our paradigm and then we were talking and we decided to go a different direction and you just don't fit. Whatever that is, is okay. But I think opening up the expectation that there should be some conversation back and forth would do a lot to build more equity in this space and try to help some of those power imbalances that this podcast is so, you know, really pointedly um, uh, brought to the front.
6: Yeah, And for me, it's really the, it's empathy, but it's also practical. Uh, So if you have a grant application that you're sending out, actually try fill it and see how much time it takes you to fill as an organization. <laughs> if you have a reporting system that you've designed for people to report into, sit and actually try fill that reporting system and see what pain uh, or what joy it actually brings up. That helps you empathize with the people who uh, are going through that process. I mean, apply human centered design to the grant making process and the donor doer partnerships.
2: I love that. Thank you so much. Those are all fantastic gems to walk away with for all listeners. Uh, we're now going to open it up to the audience. So we've got a floating mic uh, from Carolyn. Thank you so much. I see some hands there. Just a reminder, your voice will be on the podcast. Uh, so if you could say your name and your organization, wherever you're from, and then ask your question, that would be great.
5: Thank you. My name is Innocent Magambi. I run the organization called There is Hope. We work with the refugees and the host community in Malawi. My question is when do you stop chasing after a donor? Let me put it into context. Last year, when I was uh, attending the first uh, SIGO Family Foundation annual general meeting in Kenya, I emailed six, uh, 63 uh, funders that I thought, you know, we have something in common. Uh, 12 of them responded and I secured uh, six meetings. One of them visited. This year, I lowered my numbers. I emailed 12 And I secured four meetings. So, whether there is a silence or someone says no, when do I have the right to say, this is enough? Let me look for someone else.
0: Okay, (laughs) (laughs) I'll You know, I think it's hard, and like some of it is sort of reading that person and and really understanding their parameters, like finding everything you can find out about them online and, and really understanding, like, are you likely a fit? Um, But then also checking in every now and then, because funders are dynamic. They change their minds. You can be part of changing their mind. Um, And there are plenty of funders in Lawala's uh, revenue portfolio that have said no to me, sometimes multiple times, and then have come back around and we found each other more aligned. And I think that but, but I think that the trick is not to continually pitch them because on the funder side, it's just so exhausting and that can be just a real burden to receive over and over again. But instead, those are particularly the funders that you want to engage with ideas on. And so you don't have to talk about your organization, but ask them more about their philanthropy and about their paradigm and search for ways that you might be able to inform that paradigm. And search for ways that they may be able to inform yours and improve your work. And I think when when you do that, then you might find over time that you become more and more aligned with with that funder.
1: Um,
4: I would say that I stop at the point where I feel like my dignity is being compromised um, because I like to pursue from the from the perspective of conviction, because by the time I approach a funder, um, and I do I do very heavy filtering, um, so by the time I approach a funder, I am very sure and very convicted that there is very strong alignment in the work that we are doing. Um, so if, I, if, you know, through the constant engagement, um, it feels like I am now losing more and more dignity because I'm just trying to get this money, I take a step back and reevaluate or recalibrate. And maybe I can engage at a later stage, but I want to make sure that when we are talking, we are talking as partners and not from a point of desperation. Mm-hmm. Um, so, it's, so it's a bit, it's a bit hard, yeah.
6: I believe that it's a lot like dating. So you should continue building the relationship. Someone might not be right right now. Uh, they might be right in the future, mm-hmm. or they might know someone who is right for you. So keep updating people not necessarily doing hard pitching, and just keep adding value, because we're all, in the end, or we should all be trying to grow. And none of us is the extreme expert in this. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
3: I would just add, um, I think all of this is really great advice, too. Sometimes it's okay to take a pause from pitching. and and just kind of turn the table a little bit and ask questions. I think it's really important, like you all said, to just maintain a personal relationship, kind of returning to the human um, kind of centric nature of this conversation, Um, and just just maintain a relationship with a person and keep the door open. And um, like Ash said, they might not be funding you now, and they might decide to fund you later. And like Peggy said, I don't think funding is the only way that a funder can help you. Mm Um, There are a lot of funders in this room who would like to fund more organizations but aren't able to, but are happy to make introductions, Mm -hmm. are happy to provide advice. So I think there's kind of a lot of really interesting ways that that could go. Yeah,
2: I would just add one more thing. I I think all of this is exactly spot on. And one of my favorite fundraising phrases is that if you want advice, you you should ask for money. But if you want money, you should ask for advice. (laughs) So that whole exploratory approach, as as everyone has set up here. And then um, the only other thing I'd add on a practical level Level because chasing donors and managing that pipeline, it can be really uh, resource-intensive, and, and it's not oftentimes the best way to invest your time and money if that is limited. Um, but systems, as much as possible, email templates. So you've got one for the first reach out, you've got one for the mm-hmm. two weeks later reach out. and You just change the name, and as much as you can, systematizing that behind the scenes in a way that still feels really bespoke and um, and engaging for donors, but it makes it a little bit easier for you. So it's like 15 minutes every two weeks. You just shoot off a bunch of emails in the morning, and you see what comes back your way. That often is a, is a way to manage
4: that. Yeah, and just to add to that, so um, as an introvert, I found that systems work really well for me um, <laughs> because it means that I offload the social burden, the social anxiety, burden, the yeah. social anxiety yeah. Yeah, to the application. And if it reminds me two weeks later, I approach it with a fresh perspective. There's, yeah. no, there's no beef carried over. There's no frustration. It's just, oh, I need to send this email today. Right. And then when I send it, it's like, all right, you send the next one three weeks later. And yeah. then that's just removed. Um, so it, 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 it brings me back to the logical <laughs> approach.
6: It's also asking for money, asking for advice, but asking for things that people can give. So sometimes I'm having a meeting in New York and I need to bring more people than would meet in a cafe. Can I meet in your office? So, you know, just being able to ask for in-kind things that people can say yes to, even if they can't say yes to the money yet.
2: Fantastic. Any other questions? Oh, go
6: My name is Joy
2: Zawadi
1: and I work with an organization called Akili Dada from Nairobi, Kenya. We basically empower girls and young women to access leadership spaces. And I have two questions. One is on, um, and we've spoken about it, about recommending other organizations to donors that perhaps you've outgrown, or who are not the right fit for you at the moment. And we all know that people fund people not necessarily organizations. So I don't know if you have any experiences where you've been able actually to introduce people to your networks and bearing in mind the the reputational risks. So sometimes you could recommend someone and they're fantastic and other times it doesn't work out and just sharing your experiences around that. And the second question I had is on power dynamics and asserting yourselves to a donor. Sometimes they are fantastic, and the money is exactly what you need. But there's one or two things that you you really are not willing to compromise. Mm-hmm. So how have you been able just to continually assert yourselves so that the relationship works? Um, if you have any experiences to share on that,
0: yeah. mm-hmm. first of all, I'm a big fan of Akili Dada, You guys do fantastic work, and <laughs> I've met some of your some of your women, and they're they're very impressive. Um, and yeah, I think you know the the donors that have supported Lawalla, a good handful of them, have just had so much grace when when I've introduced them or, or asked them to to connect them to a grantee. Um, and one thing you know that I that I try to do is never do that without their permission and sort of put them in an awkward position. And so. I always ask them ahead of time, like, "Hey, this is the organization. This is why I think they might be a fit, and what I've been able to see in their work. Are you open to that introduction?" And sort of wait for their for their consent to to make that relationship happen. But I've, I've done that a lot, and I've had I've had organizations in this room do that for me, and I've just always had positive feedback from from those funders. And sometimes it's to say, actually, I'm not adding people to my portfolio right now. It doesn't really make sense to make an introduction, but I don't fold it, then that funder's walked away with a negative view of me. I feel like it's only been positive and and has sort of like helped to grow. And from the power imbalance and sort of how do you walk into a room and feel confident to to push back, I think one thing I really try to remind myself is that is that as implementers, we are bringing value. Their value is not just one direction. You know your community better than the funder. You know the challenge intimately, like you are the expert and you are offering an opportunity to change a small piece of the world. And that has value and power into it. And so try to like remind yourself that before you walk into that conversation. I definitely do introductions.
6: Um, you use a similar system. And I wish there was a way, I mean, there's some people, you can you can see this person is a really great leader to your earlier point. The the organization is still in the formative stage. They'll be so good three years down the road. And then you introduce them and the fund is like, no, this is not a good fit right now. So I in those instances, I realized, you know, it's just keep keep bringing up people even after like, like oh, this is how they've grown since, you know, I've, I've seen them growing this particular way since I sent you that email. So the continual, pers- persistent advocating for other people is such an important thing to to keep doing.
4: Um, yeah, I fully agree with that. I recommend as much as possible where I can. Um, but I always try to make sure, again, to ask on one side mm-hmm. and then ask for like a proper bio from the, from mm-hmm. the organization mm-hmm. so that even though I think I understand their work, at least there's like an official um, description yeah, that I can use. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of power play, I actually had a very tough experience a few years ago with um, a private donor-ish, basically an individual who was um, supporting our work. Um, but her, her idea of Impact or effectiveness was basically um, like bringing a lot of kit from the U.S. and flying a lot of people and doing a lot of business class flights and basically um, (laughs) maximizing eyeball value for, Mm. for two weeks and then going back home. Um, and so we clashed because I was constantly pushing for sustainability for the work that she's doing and I was basically telling her look you you're spending um, $30,000 or something just to come to Uganda. Why don't you? Um, create a space where um, This money can be directed better, but I think for some people it's almost like the, their physical presence is like a feel-good factor and because it's their money um, they are entitled to that. That's fine, um, but I wasn't. I wasn't comfortable with it, and we reached a point where I could no longer sustain that that relationship. And so we, I basically walked away from the table. I walked it, it. She was fantastic with her support and all that, but there was just a lack of equity in this relationship um, that we're in. Um, so I think you should be very confident in your ability to execute as mm-hmm. much as possible, but also know that you can walk away when mm-hmm. you don't feel like there's any, any power balance.
3: That's, that's really tough. And I, I would just add on on the power dynamic. And I apologize. Many of you have heard me say this before. I'm a bit of a broken record. Um, but I think a good reminder, both for organizations, but especially for funders, is that if you need to get from here to there, a jerry can of gasoline is not going to take you there. And that's what funds are. They're resources, right? They're the, They're the gasoline. But you really need a vehicle. And that's your organizations. And you know, funders can't accomplish what they want to without without organizations doing great work. And I think it's it's something that we have to be reminded of. Yeah, it, 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 I totally agree. And it reminds me of
2: one of my favorite quotes from What Donors Want in a past season. We were interviewing someone named Nick Jenkins, who's a, an individual philanthropist, but he's a judge on Dragon's Den, which is essentially like Shark Tank, but in the UK oh. where they do rapid investments um, in entrepreneurs. And he said a quote, which really has stuck out to me. He said, fundraisers always have to remember that they're solving the donor's problem. The donor has more money than they need. They want to do something good with it. They want to make uh, to feel like it's made a genuine impact. And fundraisers are the brokers solving that problem. Um, Exactly as you said, Sharwan, and Ash as well. So I think it's always really it's hugely valuable to kind of get over those nerves and that power dynamic to remember that you really are there to solve their problem as well. I think it's also just important to be upfront and clear about intention. So establishing an upfront contract, like
6: first meeting, I'm not asking for money, I'm just looking to get to know you. And it's important to call that out. And actually, Mm -hmm. if there's an elephant in the room to acknowledge its presence. And then to be very explicit, okay, this is where I see this going. Do you see us going in that direction? And if it's not, then it's okay to let someone get out of
2: the car and keep driving in a different direction. Yeah, awesome. Okay, I think we have time for one more question. Perfect.
5: Hi, my name is Amelia Plant. I work for Preston Warner Ventures, so I am
4: on the big bad funding side. <laughs> um, but it's—I've really enjoyed this
2: conversation, and it's helpful to hear kind of what you all appreciate in the funding relationship. I'd like to ask a question on the other side. You know, talking about a lengthy
4: applications or difficult due diligence, I'd love to hear an example or two of what you thought has been kind of an outrageous request or something that's ridiculous or really unhelpful to you within your own programming. And obviously, no names or anything.
5: <laughs> no, not putting anyone on the
4: spot. But um, thanks. That would be great.
0: I have so many. No. <laughs> um, one one thing I would say is that um, it's really challenging when funders not only come up with their own, like, reporting templates that often sort of needs to happen for the, for the needs of the funder, though it would be great to accept each other's reports, and there's some funders who do that, and that's just, I think, the best practice of the world. But, you know, given that you have to have your own reporting template, and you have some specific questions that are important to, to your foundation really being careful not to set metrics and indicators. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that that funders do this really unintentionally, um, not knowing that what you're asking, Lawala, when you add a slightly different indicator or a, a slightly different definition to an indicator, you are asking a frontline nurse or a frontline community health worker to do double entry of data. And this is someone who is, otherwise would be spending their time treating a patient. And so really seeing your specific metric through that lens, is the Ministry of Health's data that we already report on, are their metrics not sufficient? Is WHO or other standardized metrics that exist in the world, are those really not sufficient for your, that you could use those? Um, And even better yet, you know, could you ask the grantee ahead of time to first define what they see, what they would like to have as their metrics or their milestones with you, and then see if those could could fit your needs.
6: Mm -hmm. I'd say, um, so I'll give an example of what's been helpful and unhelpful. Mm -hmm. Helpful has been uh, a a funder who asked us to apply using a business model canvas. We were growing, so it was a nice, beautiful artifact that I could use for other other roles of fundraising. It was useful for me as a learning experience. It was useful for other meetings I had after. So having tools, having questions in your fundraising that can actually be used in other places or designing it in a way that it can be used beyond just your 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 grant application. Um, the not useful, uh, many, but the, <laughs> <laughs> when you design an application portal and, you know, It allows you to only see the questions on that page. Then you have to fill question one, two, three, four. Then you can't see the full scope of the questions. Then you can't even (laughs) estimate how much time am I giving to this. God forbid
3: your internet cuts
6: out. Oh, my goodness. Yes. But also, (laughs) you know, you can't see the full scope of questions. Then you speak with someone and they say, oh, we're using the system simply because we've paid so much for it. It's hard for us to change. It's like... Let, let's be real let's let's make it easy for for everybody um, to be able to, to yeah to, to just show that we actually value other people's time as well yeah.
4: I think there needs to be a very strong correlation between the amount of money that's being given and the application itself um, I say this because um, I recently looked at the grant so. We generally don't do grant applications because one, I suck at them. (laughs) Uh, Two, you're competing against a million professional grant writers who are writing from a very tactical perspective and you are basically bringing your emotions and feelings, right? Um, But I recently looked at a grant application where, uh, I I think the amount was $5,000, but the questions that were being asked (laughs) It's almost like you are being, you are applying for about $500,000. And it just didn't make sense. Like, if you were to bring a professional to apply for that grant, their fees would be exhausted in the application itself. Um, and then on the other end of the spectrum, there is the accountability and reporting and management that comes with um, the grant that has been applied for. And you realize, you know, we all know the organization that has very stringent reporting expectations that you actually have to hire a new person to manage that grant reporting requirements um but i think there has to be there has to be an understanding that the the process of application can eliminate the people who need this money the most right Mm -hmm. because there are large organizations who have Mm -hmm. Teams of grant writers will apply for every single grant that they can get. And because they write so beautifully, because they can fill out that form in in two hours, as opposed to the guy who has to do research, who has never heard of impact assessments, but is working with 5,000 people and and desperately needs that $10,000, is going to spend two weeks doing this thing. And he's still not going to get it anyway because he has not used the right language. He has Mm -hmm. no context for the kind of ask that you're making. Um, So I think then again, it comes back to empathy. Um, If you know that you are creating a call for applications, for organizations, that you know because of the size of the grant is targeted at organizations of a certain size, um, be empathetic to where they might be in terms of their grant writing skills and experience, and maybe create a a more... open and maybe more um, collaborative grant application process. Like maybe have a grant officer who can understand their work and help them along the process. I know it's really hard, um, but it's something that can be considered. I mean, you guys have the money, right? (laughs)
2: Fabulous. Okay. I think that is, that is it that wraps up the podcast for today thank you for such great questions from the audience and of course thank you to our, our fabulous panel, Ash, Solomon, Peggy it was so, uh, such a delight to have you on the show and thank you for being so open and honest and thoughtful with your answers and thank you to Cher One as well for being up here with me and of course a huge huge thank you to the Siegel Family Foundation and everyone there, we're so thrilled to be here and thrilled to be in partnership with you so this is a fabulous way to kick it off and uh, we really appreciate all of your time this morning so that's all we've got thank, thank you so Thank you. thanks for listening to another episode of What Donors Want as well a huge thank you to Peggy Solomon and Ash for their generous time and advice and also of course to Cher One Andy and the entire team at Siegel who made this all possible the AGM was absolutely incredible I had the best time and we are thrilled to be in partnership with you So for listeners, stay tuned for more episodes coming your way soon, officially sponsored by the Siegel Family Foundation. And please always feel free to reach out to us with any questions or comments that you might have. So as usual, you can find us on Twitter at IG underscore advisors and online at impactandgrowth.com. We would love to meet with you, love to have a coffee, and look forward to continuing the conversation. So thanks again for listening. See you soon.